Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I've always believed it's important to acknowledge those who helped blaze the trail in this landscape of queer horror discussion, and that's why I'm especially excited to welcome this week's guest. In the mid-thousands, when genre fandom took to the world of the blogosphere, his transgressively titled blog, Faggoty Ass Horror, pushed a discussion of queerness in genre that few were having at the time. From the site's attention, he became a player in contemporary horror, working in development for Fearnet, all the while creating works of his own. Beyond horror, he's a decorated star of the stage and a brilliant author and playwright. Please welcome to the show, writer, creator, and dear friend, Jeffrey McCran. That's so nice. It's all true. I always thought you did it like as a, you do it after the fact, but you do it while the guest's sitting right in front of you. I do. Wow, it's in the, behind the curtain. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, you've done so much in this landscape, and I can't wait to talk to you about it today. Thank you. Uh, but why don't we just start the same way I start every show, with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? This is such a Michael Verratti question because it's ultimately completely Machiavellian. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're people who don't know you, this is like, it's, it's a question that is so broad, and, but so specific. So we right. could go into like why horror in like queer theory, meaning the outsider, or for me personally, which obviously coming from my writing, that's my interest. I'm not trying to speak for other people. Right. So for me personally, it's like asking why I'm gay. Right. Like there's no there was never a deciding moment for me. Like why did I wear this plaid jacket today? I don't know. Right. For me it was just always part of my DNA from like being a little boy going to the ice capades and hiding under the chair because of the evil queen and then going home and staring at the pictures and like having it under my bed to you know me ranting at a bar about Prometheus to no one. It's just <laughs> always been part of the sort of backbone of my life, along with being queer. Well, that's why I always sort of give the caveat that you can interpret the question however you like. You can talk about why horror appeals to you or why you think audiences uh, are drawn to it. Because you're right, there's no wrong answer, but there are many avenues to to the right answer for you. Yeah, we could talk for hours and hours based on you know what direction we want to focus on. Like, why horror in the aughts? Why horror when I grew up, like... I, I'm really interested in these sort of pockets of, you know, David Chang, the chef, says that your your, your idea of pizza right. is based on what pizza you had growing up. So, like, what, what was the first pizza you had? So, if it's Elio's frozen pizza, to you, that's the best pizza. That's the your, your idealized version of pizza. Right. And I grew up, like, the 80s were my childhood. Mm -hmm. And that was also sort of apex slasher, apex commercial horror. Right. Before it turned into, you know, I think the sequels of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street sort of ground everything down and then it was erotic thrillers and then Scream came back and made it all fresh again. But like for me, those movies were like whether it was Children of the Corn or Return of the Living Dead, those were my, they raised me. Right. And they speak to a very specific, it was sort of raised parallel to me because like the one thing that I sort of came clear doing the blog for 10 years was that there is a, you are the outsider. There is a thing about single moms. There is a thing about parents not being around physically so the kids have to figure it out on themselves. I mean, that's what all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies are. That's what all the Friday the 13th movies are. They live in this world where there are no adults. Right. And so that spoke to me. And that was sort of the... I'm lucky that that was something... I had that outlet. It is interesting when you... I, I really hadn't thought about it before, but it, it's very true that uh, for the the teenager movies, the horror movies of the 80s, they find a way to kind of take the adults out of the equation. Uh, and it's more of a modern horror trope to have the adults involved. Like what? Well, just the idea that, like, the adults are part of the storyline. Like, you know, in, in Buffy... They for a while they kind of do the thing where they keep Buffy's mom away, mm -hmm. and then she becomes involved in the storyline and make her a pivotal like portion of the of the show for a while. And uh, I think it's just really interesting that uh, it happened in the '80s because there was sort of that uh, teenage rebellion, so they didn't want the parents around. Whereas mm -hmm. we kind of have them more integrated into the stories now. But that's also great. I mean, horror is about it goes down to fear of death. It goes down to like every awful thing is going to happen. Right. So. You're either keen to it or you're not, which is also interesting, like insight into the people who like horror movies. Right. Like you're either woke to the fact that we're all going to die or something awful is going to happen, whether the car is going to break or you get sick or something bad. Right. And you deal with it or you don't want to acknowledge that that's part of life. Dying is completely inevitable. So 
if you know for me it was dealing with that i had an abusive childhood the whole like caboodle of that stuff plus mm -hmm. being queer on top of it and then for me it was like horror was like a way of catharsis it was processing all of that in a healthy like you know drawing freddie in my notebook or being hiding the vhs tapes because i was too scared of them but also obsessed with having them so for you a lot of uh the engagement with horror early on you think was or you believe was, was catharsis for the world that you were dealing with i think that i think that I came into myself through my sort of awakening into horror movies. Absolutely. I think I was really shy, really quiet. Things were really bad at home. Right. I would go over my neighbor's house because they lived, uh, there was sort of a project next door. Mm -hmm. And I would just go hang out because they had woods in the back. And I would go play in the woods by myself, which is also a horror movie in itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like I was a weird little kid. And then I made friends with the, the parents of these. They had kids, but I was more friends with the parents. And this, they had no boundaries. And so it was like, if I wanted to watch whatever they were watching, we watched. And that was where, like, Return of the Living Dead Part 2 was the first, like, lucid memory of, okay, I was obsessed with this movie. Right. And that's also such a great gateway movie because it's about, like, fans don't like it. But if you're an 8-year-old watching a movie about 12-year-olds who have a zombie apocalypse, you know, wrought upon them. Right. That's the perfect gateway. It's like, oh, look, they're kids too. And, like, therefore, it's kind of safe. And as a gay kid... Suzanne Snyder in that movie is like next level camp dreams. Like she's just the best. And so I was hooked. And from then on, it was like, oh, well, what else is good? What else is scary? Oh, you know, in first grade, I remember people talking about Freddie and it's all conjecture. Right. Like, oh, I hear he, he fell asleep smoking and he burned himself that way. Or like in the, the playground, you talk about Hellraiser and like that one was rock and roll. That one was like actually like too scary to even talk about. Right. But like, my window into horror was all this sort of hearsay and then you finally like find it in the video store and those, those remember the covers of the VHSs were so like Frankenhooker with the talking on a date yeah and the dead pit one with the light up eyes like that those were so great because it's sort of like a coloring book where you you put your own interpretation of what that movie is without even needing to see it I remember the My Bloody Valentine I remember Carrie with like they had soup they had videos in the supermarket at one point this was like early vhs rental and they had like a it was already beat down copy of carrie where it had the split diopter like the or the split screen version of like her with blood and her without blood and i was just like that looks amazing and then i had the like the record remember they had books with records in the back and they read to you with storybooks oh yeah yeah i had the gremlins one and it scared me too much and I listened to it like once and I had to put it away, but I still loved it and would play with it and put it under my bed. I think there's something to be said uh, about the kind of uh, game of telephone that happened with horror movies of the era before the internet. Because I had a similar experience. And by the game of telephone, I mean somebody would see it or see an approximation of it and then go and tell someone on the playground. And that person would say, well, I heard it's this. Yeah, and I heard it's this. And I think that what is sort of unfortunate for the kids of today is... You don't get that because if you want to know what Saw is about, you can just go read the Wikipedia page and it will give you beat by beat. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas there is sort of this interesting urban legend quality to a horror movie when you're hearing about it third party and it seems so big and so terrifying and something that you don't have access to yet. And one of the things that I really uh, liked that you were saying about like going to the ice capades and seeing the evil queen and you were afraid of her, but then later kind of obsessed over the pictures of her or the idea that you were uh, scared of these movies, but then were also obsessed with them. I think that's a common thread with a lot of people who end up wildly invested in horror that in the beginning we were a lot of us scaredy cats, but there is something in that fear that is also obsession. And I, I think and I would be interested to get your take on this. A lot of that, especially when you exist in uh, a state of otherness or your real life situation is not necessarily ideal, it, it, there is a draw to that, even though it scares you because it's a fear that you can conquer. And it's sort of like taking the, the, the something you're afraid of and overcoming it. And I don't know, is that even crazy no, it makes, to suggest? it makes complete sense. It's, it's, some people are down to it and some people aren't. You're right. Like, are you up for a challenge or do you, you know, want <laughs> to hide the tape and throw it out? Like, I, I was up for it. I mean, it took years. There was a period even in high school when, like, some movies, I went to a Catholic school up until fourth grade and it became, like, abusive, of course, because they don't like gay people. Right. But, like, I was therefore terrified of Exorcist Three. That movie, like, if it was even on cable, I would become, like, I couldn't even turn the TV and mom was never home because she was a single mom. So she was working. Right. And, like, 
it was just one of those things, but I was obsessed with it. And still to this day, like, I, I, I there's some movies I can't even watch because they used to scare me so much. It's nice because it is like that sort of call me by your name thing where you get numb. Right. Like, now I'm watching so analytically. It's very rare that, like, Hereditary, I was completely moved by. But, like, I think watching a movie now, just turned 40, and, like, versus when you're 19 or when you're 14... It's a totally different experience. It is. And that's sort of the interesting landscape of horror movie discussion. I get, I always eye roll when someone who's been involved in the genre for a very long time goes to see a new, I remember when uh, the new It came out. Uh-huh. There were a lot of people uh, who have existed in this space with us for a while uh, who would say, oh, I liked it, but it wasn't that scary. And I'm like, is that the only reason you're watching horror movies? When was the last time? That really time- bummed me out because that, ha- that happened in the audience. And mind you, I was really, for no reason other than being a nerd, invested in the Carrie Fukunaga version. Yeah. I had the script. I was following its development. I was convinced it was going to be the reinvention of horror in the way that The Shining was in, you know, when it came out. Right. So I went with that lens being like, well, all right, thrill me. But then when I saw it, I, I was down. Like, But then people don't want... I hate that expression that like it wasn't scary. Right. It doesn't make any sense because like for me, it's always about emotional investment and like what you bring to the table. Right. So if you go being like scare me and you just want to see gore, that was like to death knell of those weird aughts movies. Yeah. I never was moved by Saw. I never cared because it wasn't you weren't emotionally invested in anything. For me, I want a character to cling on to. I want to see the kids, the magic of it. That book is so devastating because it's children realizing it's this thing we were talking about earlier. You're going to die. Right. And you're eight and you realize, oh, wait, (laughs) my mom's not going to always be here. And the book captures so beautifully. The kids are just half that book is just them weeping and holding each other. Well, that's it. I think that it's sort of uh, it's easy to boil anything down to pop culture imagery. But the impact of really good art goes so far beyond that. And I think this is where even though Stephen King is very venerated and very celebrated, a lot of times horror fans do him a disservice is this idea that we want it to be simple. We want Christine to just be a killer car. We want Carrie to be the bloody prom. But that's never really what Stephen King's about. And it is not about a clown. It's about the loss of childhood innocence. And that's why when you read that book at a thousand pages or whatever it is, it still feels like it flies by because that's what childhood feels like. But and also what you carry on. Like now we're the age of the grown-ups, which is such a trip because we were children when the miniseries came out. Right. And then now, look at us. It's like, just wait long enough. But the same thing is we're still tied to who we were 25 years ago yeah. in a profound way. We're still affected. I'm getting obnoxiously weepy, but like <laughs> we're still affected by the same fears, the same wants. We still, you feel like a kid every day. Right. It's just like, you know, you have AirPods and you can like, you know, <laughs> you have car insurance. Just like that stuff just happens. But like the... The primary stuff, you're either dealing with it or not. And like it captures all of Stephen King stuff captures that so well. Yeah, I always say I never feel older. I feel weathered, but I don't feel <laughs> yeah, older. Yeah, yeah, but you've always you you were an old queen when you were like 14. I can't <laughs> imagine that you were like any different. You're just like, I've seen it all. Yeah, all right. It's true. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we're talking about this childhood draw to horror, how you became invested in it. And uh the idea that uh, you know, there is an attraction to that which is forbidden, but also attraction to otherness and that like this draw of also overcoming fear. Uh, and this is something that you're very invested in and you are a fan of, as you said, it's in your DNA. But despite it being in your DNA, that's not where your career initially kind of veered in the world of entertainment. You also have always been pretty invested in the world of theater and musical theater. Yeah. So talk to me about that part of your life and that journey you went on, because that carried you quite far it, it as far as i felt it could go right i mean i i started doing musical theater like it was it was alongside with you know for me it's like horror and musicals right are the things that raised me and again coming from the same place of catharsis a musical to me hits the same notes as a horror movie. I don't see any difference. Well, I was going to ask you because I know that you are so firmly invested in both worlds. And when I have guests on who are into the world of theater and part of the world of theater and part of the world of musicals, uh, I do believe there's a kinship between the musical and the horror movie. If any, if if for anything else, then the fact that they both present a heightened version of reality. Emotions are operatic or don't have them. Right. Like, and that's the thing. Like you're screaming in a horror movie and you're singing in a musical. That's the same thing. I, I, I'm fascinated by it, but like also like, oh yeah, it got me through. I was always watching scary movies. I would go every Christmas to like, there was that great run of the nine, like mid late nineties where it was like Scream and American Werewolf and 
in Paris and like Dracula 2000. It was like always a like cheesy horror movie coming out on right. Christmas. And I remember that was great. And that was like the same time I was like my apex like equity actor doing musicals professionally. Like it was a weird thing. Like I, I started as 12. I did like the when they would fill in kids like for the national tours, I would do that. I would come and like be a little kid, but like never actually have to go on. But like you'd have to learn the part and go to rehearsal and all that. And then into high school, that's when I was like working equity theaters and had a whole gig with my high school where I'd leave at noon and go work in the theater till like two in the morning and then back to school for three hours. Like, did I get an education? Not necessarily, but in a way I did because yeah. I was like real world education. And then, you know, went to college and did it in Boston for a long time, directed Carrie at Emerson, which was like a whole thing because no one had done it for so long. There was like the stage door manor production and then there was ours. Right. And like I got to I was fortunate enough to have been working on Susicle before it went to Broadway. So I got to meet through through that a lot of the people who had worked on the original Broadway carry. So I got oh, wow. to talk to like Marianne Lamb and Lindsay Haightley and Betty Buckley. And it was just like, oh, cool. And so I was like piecing together the story of this thing. Again, like you said before, this was everyone knew. Right. Before there were bootlegs everywhere. You had to like really be an investigative reporter to find a bootleg of Carrie. Never mind the like Barbara Cook version. Never mind getting someone to tell you a story about how the director was told it was going to be like Greece and therefore made it a Greek tragedy. Whereas Debbie Allen made it like Greece the musical. Right. <laughs> and no one ever talked to each other about that. And like that's fascinating. And like that story still hasn't really been told. It's like this it's interesting but I was lucky enough to be in both worlds all the time right and then went to New York and it's so cheesy but like 9-11 happened I was there and like my father died like six months later he was like really abusive it was like a whole thing but like a horror movie where you realize okay like life isn't like the movies right they always say it's like oh you don't have that closure you don't have that sort of reconciliation of relationships and what they could be or what they should have been then all of a sudden like going to auditions felt kind of stupid and I was like all right well maybe I've kind of done it I was doing like off-Broadway shows and I was like okay is this it like struggling for rent right and like I remember I did a show with I did Big River I went on a national tour with Big River and there was this lady in her 50s bless her heart talking about how she still wants to have kids one day and like complaining about her roommate and I was like, okay, I don't want that to be my story. I'm good. I did it. I struggled. I lived in New York. Right. I lived a life, lived hard. And then I was like, let's try something else. So I got a commercial, went to LA. First gig at Paramount. They were filming Spider-Man 3 next door. I was like, this is so cool. So you booked a commercial and moved here? Mm-hmm. I, I, this I actually don't know about you, despite being friends. Like, yeah. I, so tell I don't, me about like, that. I don't talk about that stuff because it's like so weird. Because it's like, you know this. You have like a hundred lives. And then you end up in like... It's never as you intend, but you just sort of ride it out and like, okay, cool. It's true. I mean, and that's one of the great joys of, uh, you know, being friends with people is that you can still learn things yeah. about them on podcasts. On podcasts, <laughs> so, you know, I've known Jeffrey for a long time, and I had to bring him on the show to discover this this commercial truth. Yeah, <laughs> and then, but then, like as a day job, I was still temping, and I worked at Lionsgate, and then right. sort of stuck around. And when they bought Fearnet, I went over there. Right, and worked for this the president of Fearnet as like his assistant and then of course was like taking on acquisitions and development stuff which was a dream because the first year of Fearnet we had money like right. a, a proper network so I was getting to meet Wes Craven and getting to meet Sean Cunningham and getting to meet everybody in like the, a real way right and I think that's just also my my ideology of development is you should don't just have meetings to have meetings like they really need to connect with people yeah and so it was like my teenager dream come true and it was for, you know, I was there for four years up until the very end. And then they just took the parts and put them all on sci-fi. And then that was it. And, you know, Shutter sort of taken the role of what Fearnet was. And they're doing great. But, like, it's a bummer. And it was my first, like, real heartbreak because it became a thing. The first thing, like, outside of acting where I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. Right. This all led to this. Which is a very sort of condensed timeline biography of your journey from theater to the world of Lionsgate to Fearnet it's into yeah. where you're at now but there's a lot of stuff that's happening in between as well and uh, at some point in there you do create faggoty ass horror that's true <laughs> I had a breakup it was terrible I was it was my first real like attempt at dating I was always like that sort of Leia Michelle archetype of obnoxious theater person who like just wanted to be in a show Right. That's all I cared about. I was like, you know, going running in Central Park and auditioning for shows and 
moisturizing. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I sort of like started dating someone. It was like the, also this great, it's, it's like the perfect timeline in hindsight. But like at the time I was devastated because like I was 28. I sort of projected a whole personality onto a person. And then, of course, he's like, I'm not this person. I don't want to be together. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> which was great because it like, got me to go to therapy and like figure out all this was nothing about him at all. It was all this stuff from the childhood when I discovered horror. Right. It was like all this like broken shit. So I, in that, there, I felt there was catharsis in writing about my connection to these horror movies right and like how because, there's a there's a there's a horror movie for every occasion because it had always been something that you were invested in but up until that point you hadn't really done anything with it beyond just being a fan right no i i mean directing carrie was close because it was right. like a thing like that was legit and that's like in the horror world but again i'm not the kind of person that like to my detriment i don't like get a publicist i don't try to toot my own horn right so yeah i did that it was great it was a big accomplishment it got press and like people talk about it awesome what's next right so same thing there was a gay horror blog um and he's amazing brian jurgens we should talk about him we should bow down to him and it was called camp blood right and he it was the first time i had noticed coming and moving to LA and going to New Beverly screenings that they were always gay people. Right. And that was a thing where I was like, oh, wait a minute. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure you were at half of those screenings. But like you go and it's like, it's Adam Brody and a bunch of gay people. Right. And like, okay, cool. I love LA. But also, what's the connection here? And it's the first time I really thought about it because growing up, I didn't have a great deal of gay friends. It was always like, you know, this sort of normal 90s teenager, you have girlfriends. Right. Because I wasn't fortunate enough to be in a school or an environment where there were a lot of other gay people. Coming to LA in my 20s, and suddenly seeing, oh, wait, this is a thing. Right. I'm not the only one. And like, that's what's so great about what you're doing with this podcast and everything is now it's commercial. It's downright a thing. Yeah. Like queer horror. But like it, it sort of was me putting the pieces together, seeing these gays at the screening, being like, oh, OK, who's he? And then thinking, oh, wait, I'm not alone. So let me speak on it. And then it was also like the Julie and Julia era of like start a blog. Everyone's got a blog. It's the thing to do. Right. And so I did, and then it took off, weirdly. I don't know how, and I don't know what. I just kept going at it, because it was like the perfect opportunity. I was working the front desk at Lionsgate when I started it, and like had the time. Like that's right. the hardest thing about the blog is just the screenshots take forever. And I've even had Paul recently ask, like, why don't you have someone else do the screenshots? I have an intern. I was like, no, they need to be, they need to be from my lens. Right. Because like, you know what you want. Yeah. And like, even like a year in, there were people like asking to write for it and like asking to contribute and like make it bigger. And I was like, no, it's not what it's about. It's about like, this is one thing I can control. Right. This is one thing that's like coming from my id. And mind you, I'm not ever trying to do queer theory on this site. It was right. always just like my perspective of what these movies are, because I hate the fact that to this day, and you can attest to this with just the landscape of the people that we work with, and they're all great, and they don't, I would like to think that they're not consciously being homophobic, but there's, we're not always invited to the table. Yeah. And I, the blog came out of anger at that, because mm -hmm. you look at the history of horror, fucking James Whale. Yeah. Like, it's a queer man's medium just as much as it's a woman's medium, just as much as it's for every person of color. Like, that's the audience of horror. Right. If you break it down and to take anyone other than white men out of the equation is like just seems it's crazy. But yet the people making the decisions, the people making the blogs, the people getting to write for the sites are white men. But I think what was happening in the time where you created your blog yeah. and what we saw with other blogs uh, like BJ Colangelo's Day of the Woman or some of these other sites, uh, Graveyard Shift Sisters. Yeah. These sites were speaking like, so BJ was coming from a feminist angle. Graveyard Shift Sisters was talking about uh, black people, black women yeah. in horror. You're talking about queer people in horror. And just the progression to the world that then like, you know, Fangoria starts running the Gay of the Dead mm -hmm. uh column and the work that I was doing, doing talks and writing for Peaches Christ and then like eventually leading to the creation of this show. What I like what you're, you're saying about we're not getting invited to the table with the way the market was at the time and the way it shifted, we just made our own fucking table. Yeah, true. And now there aren't gatekeepers 
to prevent people from finding that table. No, look at look at Hollywood. Yeah. Look at Ryan Coogler and Barry Jenkins. They are not playing within the system. They're making their own system. Right. And that's the future of, I think, any the, the joy of no one getting paid anymore. The joy of there being so much content. Yeah. Is that go make your thing. Go for it. Great. Like, fabulous. Like, you deserve to, everyone deserves to be heard. That was the thing Oprah said when she was, like, summating, which I'm, I'm, I will ask you all the Oprah questions, too, because this is kind of what you do. Where right. you're, like, getting to talk to so many people from so many different walks of life. And I'm interested in the through lines. But her thing was, like, having done the show for 20-something years, everyone just wants to be heard. Right. And and that's where, like, Faggity Ass Horror came out of even the name was sort of a rock and roll rage against the machine. I was going to ask, because as I mentioned in the intro, it is a transgressive title, which of course I love. I love I love uh, bucking the norm. But I, you know, obviously you knew it was going to ruffle feathers by sure. knowing that. Oh, yeah, no, I remember when I started at Fearnet, um, certain board members at Sony were quite, uh, they, they made it aware to people, Do you know that this blog exists, like in that I shouldn't be in a position of power because right. of it. And luckily, I had people on my side being like, yeah, that's why he's here. Right. I was going to say, because it was the work that you were doing on that blog that really helped get the attention of Fearnet. It absolutely did. I wouldn't have had the credibility to do that job, especially with the landscape that we set up, like with the people in those jobs. I mean, development people are usually either trust fund kids Mm -hmm. or they're like sharky bros. They're agency guys. Right. There are very few, like, you don't really get to come up in development. It's not a job that's given to just like the hard worker. <laughs> it's not. And I wish it were. Right. But like I've had to fight for that. And having the blog certainly proved that I deserve to be at the table. Well, having the blog proved that you deserve to be at the table, it also proved that you understand the genre and the mechanisms and inner workings of the genre. But I'm curious because I always like to see how the, what has come before helps inform what comes after. And, you know, from being involved in the world of production in the world of musical theater uh in acting uh to the blog how did your work in the world of theater prepare you for being a development exec at fearnet uh it's chaos always and there's no uh whether it's something that has a 30 million dollar budget or it's a backyard play Mm -hmm. it's all everyone's winging it that's the big lesson i think i remember that learning that on seussical and like seeing how shoddy the rehearsals were right. and how crazy it was like that there's just you know like tony winning actors just lying on the floor waiting for lights to be set up and like this is a big broadway production the follow-up to ragtime for the like flarity and errands <laughs> and like okay wow it's no different than high school got it and then same thing like coming from lionsgate and then going to fearnet it was like okay productions are put together and there's sort of a system in place but then like my favorite like there's so many like we could have a whole episode about like the lost shows of like what we were going to do well i wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because now that fearnet is is no longer in the yeah. universe i feel there are some things we can more freely talk about we can talk about it all yeah so um stepping into this place that you finally get to be in the uh, the horror playground in the way that you can affect decisions that allow things to be created and work with people like Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham, which you said is like a dream come true for a horror fan, in a way that you can put content out in the world and curate content. When you were working at Fearnet, what were some of the things that you helped develop that were some of your proudest projects? And also, if there are a few that never quite got there or never happened that you wish had. I mean, we're doing... we were. We were bringing back the MTV early days. That was because both out of necessity being that we had low budgets. Right. So like we could create interstitial content. We could create like in between promos and we could if we have Heather Langenkamp in the office, we can do something with her. Right. So like that was something I was excited by because it was like constantly like that sort of Mickey and Judy. Let's put on a show attitude with like, you know corporate sponsorship and they weren't paying attention enough that we could get it by it was it felt like mtv and those first two years were unreal because we were there till like 11 o'clock at night and we were just like brainstorming and exciting and like getting the rights to tales from the crypt which was in like a graveyard at that point like no one could get the rights because it was so complicated right because like everyone owns it and then like to that actually happening then to getting to go to the warehouse and like get the crypt keeper and go to the warehouse and find out like i have the contracts in my apartment from the original series like see who got paid what and like all that stuff and like the budgets were low on the original tales from the crypt like they were all basically working for scale which is fascinating to me because like that was such a big tentpole for hbo it was like their big thing yeah when people think of hbo and hbo's kind of uh landscape of original programming now they don't realize it began Hitcher. 
with, it began with Hitcher. With Hitcher and Tales from the Crypt. Or Hitchhiker, is it? Oh, Hitchhiker. Hitchhiker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was sort of a proto-Tales from the Crypt kind of anthology yeah. horror series. And then they leapt right into Tales from the Crypt yeah. and Dream On. And sort of these shows that are all kind of culty, but, but not... But Tales from the Crypt is what, like... that. That put the lights on. Like oh, that, yeah. that got it all going. And so, like, that was huge. There was a show called Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. I love Todd in the Book yeah. of Pure Evil. It's and, a Canadian horror series. To me, it's it's like punk rock Buffy. Yeah. And it was, like, so cool. And it was, like, the kind of thing, like, we could have kept that going. And then there was, like, the development dream project. There was, like, a game show. There was a show of, with my favorite one, obviously, was my, my baby with World of Wonder, the Elvira scripted reality show oh yeah where you know she was going to come back from the dead and be celebrity again and it was all about the like sort of travels of her to get back to where she was but like obviously she was in on the joke and it was fabulous and with all these celebrity horror celebrity guests like linda blair and robert england and like kane hodder and like that was one that like i guess i learned you have to fight for ev- no one in creative positions wants to be creative. <laughs> right. You have to just like on that side of things, like as a director, as a writer, you can go sky's the limit. When you're an executive, there's a whole team of people who don't want to make anything. So anything that gets made needs to be pitched and pitched and pitched. Like that's the hardest thing about being a development guy when you actually care. If you just want to be an executive and like sit there and be like, okay, cool. Well, this is, you know, analytics say this or versus yeah, Elvira hasn't worked in so many years in this capacity, but there she's the most beloved icon in horror history. Right. Like you you want to pull analytics like she hits every quadrant. And the fact that like we couldn't get the funding together to get that done in a timely manner still breaks my heart. That's oh. like that's the white whale. I would have loved to have seen that. Everyone would have. And the thing is, is I think we're still hungering for more Elvira. Yes. The Joe Bob Briggs thing proves like if he can come back in this way with Shudder, like what are we doing? <laughs> like Elvira is the one. Like she she owns that landscape. And that was another thing. We had like a we had a Friday night block we were gonna do, which was like really cool. Like I wanted to have Francis Bean Cobain reading scary stories to tell in the dark by a campfire and like Peaches Christ hosting like a proper up all night. Like right. all basically like that aesthetic. Like I was raised with that and I think that was USA Up All Night was the thing. For me as well. Yeah. Cause it wasn't it was there is this whole other like thread of psychosexual like you watch something and like when you're 12 or 13 and if it's kind like those trauma movies are horny yeah and like as a gay kid i think you ping to that in a different kind of frequency especially the trauma movies and like all the up all night movies Mm -hmm. objectify men just as much as they objectify women oh 100 and it's so interesting when i think of the trauma movies uh how that they I was really drawn to those when mm-hmm. they would play on up all night and uh, knowing Lloyd Kaufman now I you know there are a whole there's a whole echelon of trauma fans who think that he just was like in service to like TNA for straight boys and I'm like no he had an awareness of who that his audience was all degenerates yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. anybody who was just sort of like out there on the outside yeah, and I miss that. That's one thing I miss about, like, we don't have the trauma. We don't have the John Waters now. Right. I mean, like, I'm really excited about this Greg Araki show on Stars because it's like, I think it's cool that we've, we've lived long enough to see something that was so transgressive and counterculture now be a series on a cable network. I know, it's so bizarre. <laughs> do you remember, though, that Greg Araki had tried to do an MTV series uh, at one point and they had aired one, a pilot and it aired once. Yeah. And then it never happened. I have that somewhere and I remember thinking that would have been a really cool show. Yeah, and but like that's the thing. That's the joy of right now. It's like I said, like no one's getting paid but you're getting it. Like if you play the game, you can get stuff made. Yeah. And like at the end of the day, people will find it it takes a minute it's not easy right. you know my favorite show is that ballet incest horror show from stars and no one saw it flesh and bone oh i i, I didn't even it's know it's literally flowers it. in the attic but like at a ridiculous budget by Maura wally beckett and it's the best if anyone's listening and wants my recommendation on what to change your life with it's flesh, flesh and, and bone, bone. <laughs> it's my two great loves it's like ballet and horror and like it's just great uh, so then when Fearnet closed, mm-hmm. was that, did that come as a surprise or did you guys know it was coming? Like having been in the sort of executive echelon, I knew it was coming for like a while, unfortunately. Right. Like when you stop getting approved budgets, you're like, okay, well, what's up? <laughs> like right. when you're all of a sudden you're going home at five, you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to go for a run. And like, you know, something's up. 
Right. It was my first layoff. It was my first like, oh, this company no longer exists. And so that was like a learning experience just as far as like this larger corporate Hollywood culture and that like you're in it, on, you're on your own. Right. But also it makes you a better executive. It makes you smarter. It makes you more savvy to, I, I like always, am, do, I'm always worried about people who've only been at one network for 20 years because it's like, okay, well then you don't really like know the landscape because right. like there's something that comes from like having to go from place to place because also that's now the new model the new normal is like you have your job as long as you have it and then like the landscape shifting the way people watch shows is so different the way we watch horror movies is so different it's true i mean like getting to go direct to vod was like a thing it was like a merit a demerit and now it's like that's how you watch movies like i watch a premiere on shutter because how else am i going to see it i'm not at the you know stanley film festival no it's true it's it's uh so interesting what a difference five years makes Mm -hmm. because you're right like coming from the landscape of genre where if you told someone oh i had a movie that was released directly to vod or released to dvd it was sort of like oh i'm sorry i'm sorry it's (laughs) not that great huh and now you've got uh platforms like shutter that are making movies exclusively for that or uh production companies like blumhouse are making complete motion pictures to release directly to netflix and directly to hulu i mean sandra bullock that's like that was the biggest like next to Quiet Place. That was the biggest movie of last year. Was it horror really? wise? I mean, like they according to their numbers, which who knows what that means. But like, right. As, but as far as like you're aware of it, like on Twitter, people talked about it. Like it became memes. Like when was the last time a horror movie became that like memeable? It's true, and it's so interesting because one thing that I have found working within the realm of digital is uh, how studio execs have yet to figure out really what that means. I still will go into meetings with studio executives where they'll kind of like lay lay out on the table like, how do we make something go viral? You can't. It is truly chaos. So when Bird Box became a memeable phenomenon, there were were like, you know, the conspiracy theorists that were like, oh, Netflix planned this. It was like, there's no way Netflix could have planned this to happen. But also that's, you're speaking to a larger, I mean, now we're getting like really obnoxious, like, (laughs) like Peter Bart blog, but like there is a divide of generation in all the studios right now. Right. So, like, look at what happened with the Heather's TV show. Like, that, you have old guard Paramount who's like, we don't get it. Bury it. And then you have young guard Paramount that got it made. Right. So, like, they were motivated enough and they believed in it enough. I mean, it's fucking Leslie Headland. Like, this is a real show. Right. And it was beautifully done. Like, people are, like, it became controversial because we live in a world where people are getting shot every day. That's not the show's fault. Right. Like, if you want to be mad about something, it might be, like, to call your senator. Like, don't blame the show. The show didn't do it. Right. Be mad at the world. Yeah. And you should be mad at and the like world. And, like, the show's actually commenting on that really articulately. And, like, as far as this adaptation, it did it all right. It did mm-hmm. everything right. It wasn't trying to be the original. It had the essence of the original. It took the parts you like, but it also made it modern. It was kind of a musical. It was horror. It was... Right. I am a fan of that. But, again, Paramount, because of the generation divide, threw it away. They are like, all right, well, we don't want it. And, like, right. that's happening at every studio. And it's, I'm sure it's even happening at Netflix, who you think of as being sort of the defining, like, they say what's what in digital. No, there's, like, people who've been there for 30 years, 20, or, like, there's people who are 25 or 35, and they get it, and they're seeing how people are watching shows or what they're watching. And, like, those people never sort of, it's the country problem. Like, we're not, it is. we're not speaking the same language. And, like, okay, well, cool. Then, like you said, we have to make our own table. We do have to make our own table. And I think that, again, with the, the lack of awareness of how digital has changed the landscape, there are still people who are thinking of movies and television uh, in the traditional number sense. Mm-hmm. And you no longer can, because I think that the the audience en masse is not the audience that it was. You can have like sub pockets. But I think in that way, it's important to create work that then speaks to something or pushes cultural buttons. Course, everything should, no matter what, yes. though. If you're, if you're not telling a story, and that's like taking it back to the blog, it was like, for me, I wasn't trying to speak for anyone other than myself. And then like the joy of it when, when it was up and running and I was like very lucid. Right. It, it was. It, but specificity is what makes it universal. That's true of any, you know this, you write so many scripts a year. It's like <laughs> the only way it works is if you're pulling from something real. True. You can't write theoretically or it just feels like, a, you know, an essay. And no, no one, I mean, they are essays, but like, I don't want like I want mine's weird and like to the point where I alienate people and like you said even faggoty ass horror alienated people like just as by design but like I wasn't concerned with getting a job at BuzzFeed right <laughs> like it was never the end game for me I was just like it was the blog existed as a means for me to work through 
a lot. <laughs> but I think that, like, when I look at the body of work you've created, you also know that in pushing that envelope, there's a larger discussion to be had. I hope so. And for the people who, there, there of course, are always going to be people who are alienated, especially when you're dealing with issues of otherness, because there are people who are going to refuse to engage with it. And you're not necessarily making it for them, but you're making it for the people who do need to connect to it. And I, I, I look at, you know, some of the theater work uh, that you have done in the days since FearNet. Uh, in, in, a couple years ago at Fringe Fest, you did a unauthorized musical about Leah Remini called Insuppressible. That's right. And it uh, was, you know, it, it it was satirical, but there was also social commentary in that. Yeah, I was angry. And that was important for you, I assume, to take the time. Like, writing anything is no small endeavor. No, she's a feminist icon, and she took down an entire institution. An entire, she literally changed the narrative. Talk about, like, how the world landscape changes so fast. Right. Leah Remini personally changed the narrative on Scientology. One woman. Right. And that, to me, she is a Disney princess. Like, she deserves to be canonized. Like, she's, that's a hero. And that's yeah. somebody who, like, she's empowering people who had no power before. So, like, if, if you can affect one person, great. She did a lot more than one person. But, right. like, yeah, that's what keeps me going. Because, as you know, it's, like, can be disheartening. I don't want to sound jaded, but, like, as you know, like, there's a whole team of people saying you can't do that. You can't right. do this. Whether you're taking a meeting at a network or you're writing a blog post or I'm, like, giving an opinion on Twitter. Right. <laughs> they're, like, there's, you know, the, the mansplainers. And they're, that's, not ex- that's not only straight white men. That's gay people, too. I got mansplained yesterday. And, like, okay, cool. All the right. best. And you can just meet that with love. Like, obviously, you don't get it. Like, I'm not... There is a wink to it, and maybe that's generational. Maybe our sort of relationship to satire or, like, biting humor comes from the fact that, you know, we have deep pain that we're not dealing with. I don't think it's not dealing with it because I've been to therapy, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. – I think I'm good to the people in my life. I don't think I'm always – I don't think I'm biting, and I'm certainly not trying to read anyone. No. Do you think that satire and society's relationship with satire has – shifted due to this kind of larger digital conversation where every every voice is now out loud at once i don't think i think it's great i think it's getting watered down if anything Mm -hmm. i want weird voices the gay and wondrous life of caleb gallo to me is a masterpiece have you seen that yeah i think it's great because like it's specific and it's not trying to be other things. And then you get to, like, I'm not going to name shows, but, like, Difficult People was really, she was pissed off. They were coming from a really, like, rock and roll place with that show. <laughs> and, like, it's very, biz- the narrative around that and the way people talk about them in meetings is, like, very stressful to me. Because I'm like, wait, is it, like, you just don't like gay things, huh? Right. Because Julie's not gay, but, like, it's a queer show. You don't have to be gay to be queer, I don't think. <laughs> no, that's really interesting, too. Uh, one of the first uh, kind of, like, hurdles when I was curating this show was occasionally I would have guests on that uh, it's it, pe- the audience would be like, well, they're, that person's not gay. I'm like, okay, but queer doesn't necessarily just mean gay. Mm-mm. Queer can mean a great number of things. Uh, and so that's what this show is literally, as I say, every episode at the beginning – queer horror and beyond and queer is an umbrella for a lot of different identities and a lot of different people some of whom are struggling for representation and some who have not even been represented yet and so there is a place in this genre and uh in this discussion where i want to hear all those voices but that's the thing of that's what's great about horror that's like where it's starting from like where i started like with the theory stuff it's just you're outside Right. Anyone. And that can be just that can be even the guy on the football team. Like if you feel somehow excluded from a group, if you feel somehow other. Right. That's what horror speaks to. And it always has. And it always will. I hope. Right. But like that's why. It, yeah, it isn't. It's inherently queer. And that's why the sort of anger of like the inception of the blog and still what fuels me. It's like not like I'm walking around in a dark cloud. It's just that, you know, we have a right to be like this sort of thing gets co-opted. Right. Like in, in a lot of these movies are aggressively bro and they don't like gay people. Like I'll, I will name the new Halloween movie. I don't think it I don't think that that movie liked gay people. And it bummed me out because I grew up worshiping Halloween. Right. I, all every one of those characters. It was so crystal clear. It's so beautifully shot. It's so artful and it's so feminist and so empowering. And then to see it sort of be like twisted through this lens of fandom bothers me. Right. 
And that was my my take. I'm sure, like, I, Jamie Lee getting a check, great. I'm so glad. I want Jamie Lee in, on Twitter, Jamie Lee having a voice now again. Right. That's amazing, and I, it's worth it. Great. Do you think, and this, I'm going to take the gay out of the equation and that discussion specifically, but, like, yeah. with something like Halloween or any, like, larger pop culture property, whether it be Ghostbusters or Star sure. Wars or whatever... There is a point where I wonder if it becomes too monolithic in the the like minds and hearts of fans that it it just becomes I don't know I don't want to say a parody of itself but when you look at like the 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 original Star Wars based on how fans react and interpret and are venomous about the new Star Wars movies or even just like well, Ghostbusters is the litmus test for, like, yeah. if you're talking to a monster person or not. Like, it really is. Because, yeah. like, I use that at work. Like, if an executive is being really aggressive, I'm like, what do you think of this new Star Wars, uh, new Ghostbusters? And, like, the minute they start talking, it's like, oh, okay, you just hate women. Right. Got it. Got it. Like, they, people will tell you everything you want to know about them based on the way they feel about these weird big franchises. Right. To your point. So, like, yes, that you're right that that does speak to a large toxic, like, sort of the world is changing and I'm mad about it. Right. But also, I think the answer to that is to make weird sequels. We're doing it straight. They aren't even making sequels. They just keep remaking these things ad nauseum. So it's a copy of a copy. And, like, I don't want to know about Jason Voorhees' father and that he was you know the library card broke like I don't care about all that stuff I don't need to know specificity I want like you think you're watching Girl Interrupted and then the door opens and it's Freddy Krueger like I want a twist like I want something that's like oh I didn't even know I was watching a you know I didn't know I was watching a Hellraiser movie are you kidding because you're so invested in a story they're all forest in the trees because like nobody's trying to tell a good story they're just trying to make more t-shirts and hats and cups right and so like you're failing when you're doing that. I understand it's an IP and I understand you want to have your, you know, Scream Factory shirt and like all that. But like, no, that's not what it's about. It was never about that. Wes Craven didn't make Nightmare on Elm Street because he wanted, you know, me to have a bobblehead thing. What are those called? The Oh, those Funko Pops? Fun- yeah, I didn't, I don't want the Funko Pop. If you get a Funko Pop, you earned it. I, want, I have a Molly Ringwald one from, you know, uh, Breakfast Club because that outfit's so iconic. <laughs> but like, I think that everything being made or remade is being done from that lens. Like, we need a Funko Pop. We need to sell Nikes. Right. Versus, what's the story? And, like, when you tell the good story, you win. Hereditary is not trying to sell a T-shirt. It's just talking about (laughs) broken relationships with your parents and how, like, maybe they never should have had you. And that's so primal. It's so, like, everyone has that feeling. Why was I born? I didn't ask to be here. Right. That movie deals with that so beautifully. No, I really think that Hereditary was such a powerful exercise in grief that I haven't seen yeah. at the cinema in a very long time. When he, she's standing at the edge, I'm cry about it. Like, but he, she's standing at the edge of his bed, like possessed or whatever, and he's like, "Why do you hate me?" And like, that's such a primal. Every teenager has had that moment with their parents, or I, I maybe that I'm just fucked up, but like, I that spoke to me. And like, I didn't ask to even be born, and like, I'm having to deal with all your shit, right? Never mind, like, trying to figure out my own way. And, like, that's the power of horror. It can do that. The Witch, it's so sad. That movie's, like, such a good movie because it's such a clear story and you can, like, tell anyone. But at the same time, like, I can't watch it again because it's really sad. Right. And, like, that's profound. Like, if you can tap into that, and that's still happening. And those aren't just, you know, Ghostbusters and Star Wars. Exactly. And like, that's what I'm excited by. That's the cool stuff. Well, speaking of what excites you about horror and the power of horror and this journey that you've been on from, you know, being obsessed with it as a kid, the the integration of it into your world of musical theater to bringing you through your blog to working at these places. Yeah. Um, before we kind of like wrap things up, there was a period after FearNet where Faggot Ass Horror was very dormant. Yeah, it was. And recently, it woke back up. It came back up, yeah. So you had not written for your own blog in a number of years. Yeah, a couple, yeah. And what was the motivating factor? It became a conflict of interest with FearNet just because, not naming names, but there are horror blogs who ended up in development positions because, like, they were very keenly, like, promoting certain films. And, like, that's interesting to me. And I, that, like, we would joke about it at FearNet because we were a website, too. Right. And, like, how that's a direct conflict of interest. Like, if I'm 
like and they mind you when the website was up and running i would get pitched i would get people would be like oh will you please write about my movie would you please do this i'll give you free dvds or giveaways that was not my interest like that i couldn't right. it's the same thing of like when people asked like pitch stories mm-hmm. i didn't want i couldn't get my head around the infrastructure i couldn't figure out how to like incorporate other voices because it just felt so personal even to the new you know the the sort of revisited version right. it's still incredibly personal it's so much a part of my id right so i didn't feel like it was appropriate if i'm meeting with Wes craven um, i've already gushed about him in the blog and in to anyone who'll listen because right. those movies are just he's so great and i remember like i did write for fearnet about it just because my soul to take was so reviled i loved it i did too because it's queer. Yeah. And and from the instant I saw it, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, this is great. And like, I remember Lawrence, bless his heart, the best editor in chief ever. Uh, he was like, you should write about it, write a response. And so I did. And Wes Craven sent me a thank you. And that was like, I was like, okay, cool. I, I am, I'm in a good place with this. Like, I'm, I'm busy enough every day. I, I don't need to sort of do. And also, I feel like I tapped out. Like, I've covered, I haven't done a number, but like dozens and dozens and dozens of movies. Right. And like, there's only so many queer horror movies without dipping into like, I've talked about David Dakota. Mm-hmm. Is that the right pronunciation? Dakota. Dakota. And like, I don't need to go into every one of his films. He's made hundreds. Yeah. But like, I talk about, like I've actually revisited him in the new, in the new batch because I had never seen Sorority Babes. Oh yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> I can't speak highly enough of it. It's everything great about the USA Up All Night era. So then I wasn't writing because of Fearnet. And then also once Fearnet shut down, I, w- I went back to musical theater. And then I did the BMI musical theater program and like started to write. Right. And like that was where I took all the writing sort of I've been doing and then applied it to musicals. So Lee, Rem- Lee Remini very much came out of that. Like I was like doing it formal. Like coming from being an actor to actually like writing musicals is a different thing, and like, so there was a dormant period while I was sort of starting over. Well, yeah, you weren't writing faggoty ass horror while you were at Fearnet because of a conflict of interest, and then there was the pause after that because you had started, started writing invest- musicals. Started writing musicals, but within the last year, it was like it woke back up. And was there an inciting incident that you were like, I need to bring this back? There always were like, you know, in the in the back drawers of my brain, like, oh, I want to cover brain damage. I want to cover like these movies that became like and also with the rise of Scream Factory, mm-hmm. like those titles are great. They're doing the Lord's work. And so I'm exposed to movies. Even I had never seen society before. Like there's movies that came up in the gap that became like uh, what's the Louise Lasser Thanksgiving movie? Oh, Blood Rage. Blood Rage. Yeah. Like these are movies that are unbelievable. These are classics. But like I had never, they were blind spots for me when I wrote the first time. And also I think you'd be able to tell me better, like, because I'm all id. (laughs) Like, I think the writing's changed. I think like I'm coming from a different, I mean, I'm older. I would hope that the perspective's a little different. I think I'm still angry, though. (laughs) I I wouldn't say angry. I think that you are pointed in your mission. Yeah. Uh, So let me ask you this. But with all the films that you've covered uh, in your blog and the discussion of queer horror, you know, obviously there are movies that get referenced a lot in the in the queer horror you know, pantheon. Mm-hmm. But is there like is there a movie or two that you really really think queer audiences need to check out or look at it with a different lens? I will never not be fascinated and obsessed with Interview with the Vampire because of what it is. It's like to to do inflation. It's like a two hundred million dollar vampire gay vampire blockbuster about like a dissolving relationship between two men and they adopt a child to try to band-aid their relationship that's fascinating that movie exists right it's a movie about a gay relationship sold to like tom cruise fans i i can't get to this day can't get my head around obviously with the power of david geffen and the fact that they were blockbuster books I still can't get my head around the fact that this thing exists and it's this weird energy exists in it because they're trying so hard to play against the subtext. Right. That it makes it even queerer in a way. It's like very interesting and like Brad Pitt was miserable making it and I, Tom Cruise never really takes movies home with him so it's like this very bizarre experience in River Phoenix I remember being obsessed with like he was supposed to be the boy and like I'd read that book when I was 12. It was the perfect time to read that book as a little gay kid and then like obviously that boy's there on a hookup 
with this vampire. And like, I think River would have played that subtext very beautifully. Right. Christian Slater plays against it too. So the whole movie exists in this weird, this weird other region. And mind you, it's consummately filmed. It's Elliot Goldenthal's score. And like, it's just crazy that it exists. And up until, up until the bad, uh, Freddie Mercury movie it was the highest grossing gay film of all time I think next to Birdcage or like they were they were neck and neck oh I didn't know that mm-hmm. that's really interesting mm-hmm. uh, box office mojo Claire, Claire classifies it as a gay film too which is see we're not wrong I'm not crazy thank you box office and mojo. then of course Nightmare on Elm Street 2 I'll never like it, there's a reason we talk about it I, I, I was really sick last week I had a fever and I put it on as like a comfort movie and it was one of those things where it's like I could revisit that movie on the blog every five years and have a completely different angle on it it's fascinating it's so gay in a really masterful way and I again they they always like stick by the narrative that they didn't know they were making a gay movie and it's like that's bullshit yeah everything about it from the probe game to the screaming to the penetrating like all of it is queer imagery and like the, the gym teacher like there's a lot going on in that movie Oh, and I see new things every time I watch it too. Mm-hmm. That I and I've seen it many times. The jockstrap, like, there's a what is going on? <laughs> every time it's shocking. It is, but it's delicious. It's amazing. So like, those are the two big ones. Just and they're obvious, but like, I still feel like we're in. I still feel like, for lack of a better word, I still feel like we're in a ghetto. I still feel like we have to f- scream and yell for people to acknowledge even something as gay as Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Like, this is this is real. Right. It's like that scene in Velvet Goldmine where he's pointing at the TV. Like, that's me. Like, that's, why don't, like, we sh- deserve a place at the table. Like, these are gay. They know they're gay. Fright Night, the evil Ed is a gay character. He, well, the fact, too, that Jerry Dandridge has, like, this sexy manservant that yeah. lives with him. Yeah. And they joke about it in the movie. Like, they, they it, to, to Tom Holland's credit, like, they know what they're doing. This right. wasn't accidental. And yet we're, like, you know, it's part of the closet and part of internalized homophobia is, like, accepting that you're less than or not demanding more. And I think that's, like, if if it's not anger, it's saying that, like, we deserve better. Right. But also let's... Let's pay tribute to the things that that did come through. Right. Like, there's a lot of queer shit. And I don't even touch on lesbian shit because that's not my thing. But, like, you look at Poison Ivy with... Uh, Drew Barrymore? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a lesbian masterpiece. And, like, that deserves to be talked about. There's, like, so much. Right. The hunger, definitely. The hunger, absolutely. I mean, there's a whole... There are dozens. But, like, again, it's not my, it's not my sandbox. So I'm not going to, like... There, I'm sure there are people who can speak on it much more articulately than I can. No, and I think this is a really good uh, mission statement for people out there who are interested in queer horror and creating queer horror is that we need to demand to be heard. And we need to create the art we want to see, but also acknowledge that there is this whole history, both veiled and not, that exists that we can pull from and look at and celebrate. And thanks to people like you, that work has not gone uncelebrated. Because for a very long time, yeah, you might like recognize watching a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was queer and someone might have remarked upon it, but until the gates broke open and people like yourself or Sean Abley with Gay of the Dead or Camp Blood started talking about this stuff, it felt isolated. We might have known, but who else were we talking to about it? Was there a larger discussion about it? And because of the work of queer horror journalists, it forces the people who are not queer to recognize, oh, there's even more to these movies than I think I know. And it it sets other people correct on their path as well. Yeah, to the point where they're trying to course correct and say that, you know, Friday the 13th 7 is gay because they were like jealous of all the attention that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is getting right and it's like you can't make fetch happen like you're not <laughs> like I, I appreciate part 7's bad shit and it's like it's own special diamond right but like you can't compare the two like just because you have a gay actor in it doesn't make it gay sometimes like mind you that's a subset of my blog I like to talk about that because as a gay kid it pings your spider sense it does and that's fascinating to me but again Yes, it becomes mainstream. And now, like, what the big markers, like, someone five years older than me will talk about the fan and be like, to them, gay horror means camp. Yeah. To us, it's like Corey Haim and Lost Boys. That means representation. Right. Because, like, I don't think you can watch Lost Boys and not say that's a gay kid. 
Right. You know, he's got a Rob Lowe poster in his room and he's in high fashion. I zero in on that poster every time yes. I watch The Lost And it's Boys. wonderful because it's representation. And like when you're you're bringing to it what you need. Right. And like you watch Corey Haim in that movie, you're like, oh, that's a gay kid. And I, all I wanted when I was a little boy was an older brother like Jason Patrick. Albeit that's a total like psychosexual fantasy. But at the same time, it I felt represented in that movie. Right. And then to the kids now, it's like Jennifer's Body or The Covenant, which are much more aggressively queer. Right. But to the point where Jennifer's body is finally getting the acknowledgement 10 years out because of systemic misogyny. But like, that's a great movie. It really is. And like kids, you know, five years younger than me, 10 years younger than me, that's their Nightmare on Elm Street. So right. like that's that's what they grew up with. Oh, I know. I've talked to I've talked to people in their their early to mid 20s and they talk about the covenant a lot, too. Yeah, because that's a gay fantasia well it is it's just like boys with in their underwear for like 90 minutes gratuitous nude men playing like calling each other witch (laughs) which is wild because it was directed by rennie harlan like good for him i mean i love i love when people who seem to be like cigar chomping heteros like make queer films just because nightmare four is pretty like it's phantasmagoric which I always put in a queer bucket because, like, whenever someone sees things that colorful, I think Nightmare Four also has a lot of queer subtext because Alice takes strength from her community. She's an outsider who has to pull from the people around her, and I have always viewed Alice as a queer icon. That's why you're the best, Michael. Dude, <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite nightmare? It's four. Four, because I think four is the like. Obviously, my favorite's five because of my skewed relationship to Joe Seeley, who, mind you, this is fun, like, off topic. He did reach out. Oh, yeah? (laughs) After, like, (laughs) being a nut about him on that blog for so many years, he did reach out. And that was, like, one of the fine accomplishments where I was like, all right, I'm good. I'm good. I can take (laughs) I can step away from this now. All my childhood dreams came true. I love that. But, yeah, but four is the, like, if you want to show someone who, my boyfriend doesn't like horror movies, I showed him four. Because I'm like, this is what you think of, like, albeit Nightmare 1 is Nightmare and, like, 2 is gay. 4 is the one that, like, this is what sequels can be. Yeah. And how cool is that? Like, that movie's bonkers. It's the Nightmare movie I've seen in the theater the most times because anytime it plays, I rush to go see it with an audience. No, it's it's a beautiful movie. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then that's what another thing, like, we could talk about for days, but we won't because we're wrapping up. But, like, I don't like when people call horror a guilty pleasure or anything because like, there is real art to this yeah and these movies are beautiful i don't believe in guilty pleasures no i think if you like something you should celebrate it yes and often guilty pleasures are used to describe it's a it's misogynistic yeah. it's used to describe Nora efron or like these people who are geniuses and you say oh rom-coms are a guilty pleasure or horror is a guilty pleasure because you're you know as you can hear me discuss on uh, Clark Wolf's podcast, I believe also this week, I believe Her- When Harry Met Sally is a perfect movie. Yeah. And there's nothing guilty about that. And that's all because of Nora Ephron. No, we should all be so lucky. And like, and also to talk about like Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan makes that work. Yeah. She makes Nora writes <laughs> and Meg makes it seem effortless. I'm going through a big phase where not even a phase. It's like a lifelong appreciation. But she's she she went away talk about like dark periods like she went away yeah. and she never should have she's one of the masters of acting she's she makes movies work she's a true movie star like in the way that julia roberts is but like we punish her for some reason well systemic misogyny mm-hmm. <laughs> on that note <laughs> on that note uh we've talked about a lot of movies and we've name checked a lot of things that inspire you and motivate you and uh make you do what you do uh you also in the context of this conversation mentioned that you're a big fan of flesh and blood bone uh and that you recently liked hereditary but is there anything else recently that you've seen that inspires you or that you just really enjoyed i mean the joy of these this weird era we're in is like i can find these old movies that i've never seen right like i have phantom of the mall at home i've never seen that like there's like all these weird like that it's it's the the perk of like you're saying the groundwork that was laid by horror journalists is now i'm still in the discovery period right i'm finding movies from 1988 like you you're a genius on tv movies and these are like a whole thing that like didn't get it, we weren't exposed to you were lucky enough to catch them or like someone tells you about them in your 30s yeah and like how cool so like that's that's exciting you know like as far as studio released horribly i didn't see quiet place because it's straight people <laughs> like, to be honest and I, I know that's wrong and like i'm not i'm old enough to not try to be a completist anymore i i'm right. good like i want to see things that speak to me or that i'm interested in or excited about passionate about so like you know and i like you know me i love a marvel movie just as much as i love uh, merchant ivory 
it's all the same to me. Like if you draw strength from something, great. You know, I'll talk about Prometheus. Like that's still my, the hill I die on. I think that movie's a masterpiece. I love it. I love that. Well, it's maybe it's time for uh, Dead for Filth listeners to revisit Prometheus. What about you? What are things that like in the next last month too that you're like jazzed by? Uh, what have I seen recently? Um, oh, you know what I saw recently that I really liked that is definitely genre and definitely camp and definitely one of those movies that I know will appeal to a whole generation of kids later because there's something just heightened and subversive about it and it's just weird enough is a movie that came out around Christmas time uh, it's a British movie called Anna and the Apocalypse a musical it's a musical uh, about a British schoolgirl who happens to be uh, up against the zombie apocalypse at Christmas time and it's a Christmas movie it's a musical it's a zombie movie it's just it's a high school movie there's romance in it and it's one of those things where it, it doesn't fit in any one box and it's really wonderful. Yeah. Like, I just want to see more of that. It's like you said, I want to see more weird stuff. And that was weird, but in a beautiful way. Where it's the way to win. Exactly. Uh, weird's the way to win, I think, is the perfect message for this week. Uh, Jeffrey, where can people find you? I don't know. In Santa Monica? <laughs> well, generally people just like <laughs> offer social media. But if, like, uh, if you want to keep your eyes open at Whole Foods for Jeffrey, please do. Yeah. That's that's good. You know, I'm terrible at self promotion. I, I I don't like it. I think check Faggoty Ass Horror for updates. I'm sure that I'll get inspired to write again. Or if I have like three that are written, or maybe five that I just haven't done the screenshots for, because that's the thing. So like, I'll have these feverish moments where like it's eleven o'clock at night, and I'm just like, oh, I need to talk about Nightbreed and like my relationship to Ann Bobby, and then <laughs> it doesn't get published, but it will. And like, that's the one thing I learned from this revival. In the revival, mind you, was I was I was in it for a chunk of time. It was like a sort of depressive period. It was between projects. I had like a green light on one thing and another thing didn't go. So I was like, you know what? I can be productive and I can write through this and like something I have complete control over, which is where the blog is my greatest, the greatest gift given to me is like this sort of thing that I, um, which is why I'm glad I never sold out with it. I never got it sponsored or all that stuff because there were offers and I know and I own it. Well, it's a site that has certainly laid a lot of foundation for so much uh, that has come after. It is a place that I really appreciate for uh, all the work that you've done in the queer horror world. And I'm grateful to you. Thank you for coming here today. Thank you for all the work you do in the queer horror world. And thank you for having... This is like illustrious company I'm in. I I appreciate this. Well, you have done illustrious work. And I wanted to celebrate that today. (laughs) Please, listeners, check out Faggity Ass Horror and keep your eyes open for Jeffrey's name. He's always up to something and creating stuff. Uh, Like I said, you can see productions that he has written coming to stages sometime soon, I'm sure. He works in the world of film and TV. He's someone to watch, someone I adore, a dear friend. New face is 98. (laughs) Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Michael. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>